Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We are entering a very challenging economic period as we move past March and insolvency laws, the freeze changes and a lot of the, you know, the payments get wound back. We're going to be facing significant challenges in this state. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another year in federal politics. Welcome back to the show. I'm Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and it's lovely to be back with you all. My guest today is an upstart, and I mean that term generously. Keith Wallahan has just won pre-selection in the federal seat of Menzies in Victoria. Now, Keith has managed to unseat the veteran conservative Kevin Andrews. We're going to get into how that happened in this in this conversation and we'll get into all kinds of nuts and bolts. But let's start, Keith. I was just saying before we started recording this conversation, we're doing this conversation remotely and also it's a little unusual for me because often on this podcast I speak to people whom I know very well. This is the first time Keith and I have met. So I'm curious and I know the listeners will also be curious because you have not, you've not been in public life before. Why don't we just start with who you are and your background so that we can tell people what you've done before heading in the direction of Canberra? No, thank you, Catherine. And thank you for having me and welcome to your listeners. I wasn't born in Australia. Uh, I came here as a 10-year-old with my family from Dublin, Ireland. We tried to come earlier, but our application, well, their application came up short and we thought we weren't going to be able to make it. There's so many points that you need to come to Australia. But some somehow someone changed their mind at the embassy and gave us a chance and said, yeah, off you go. So in 1988, we landed in Melbourne and I, I said in my pre-selection speech that um, first night was at the Nunawadi Motor Inn in Melbourne, which is still there, and I still remember that night. And uh-huh. at the time, the exchange rate wasn't good, the economy wasn't great in Ireland, so we didn't have much money. And mum and dad started working out what we were going to do and what sort of life we would have. So it was a big risk that they took, and that, that was how we, we started the journey to Australia. From there, we settled in Ringwood, which is uh, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and we went to public schools, and I was really grateful for the time that I had at public schools. I went to a school called Ringwood East Primary School. It was closed down by Jeff Kennett at one stage, so my mum wasn't a big Jeff Kennett fan at the start, but she came <laughs> round. <laughs> and then we, um, I went to uh, Ringwood Secondary College, and that's a school I'm very grateful for, for giving me the start in life. It was full of passionate 
wonderful teachers. And as most public schools are, it had people from a wide variety of backgrounds. I went through that school and was very fortunate to be elected school captain or head prefect, it was called. And and that's where I first got a taste for running a campaign. I um, mm-hmm. I remember listening as a, in year seven to the head prefect give a speech. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, I'd like to do that one day. And so as I got closer to year 12, I decided I'd start a campaign team to become head prefect. And I think I had about five friends of mine that were all the campaign manager and uh-huh. they all thought they were the campaign manager, which they were. And and it worked. And it was really nice experience being able to be in charge, you know, of the, the school uh, student decision-making body, but also learn how to do speeches and things like that. So mm-hmm. so that was up to mm-hmm. high school. I'm happy to pause it there. If you want me to keep going, let me know. <laughs> No, 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 no. No, it's all right. We don't need the entire contents mm. of the log cabin, but I just it gives people a sense of who you are and gives me a sense of who you are as well. Um, mm. But when you left school, you've had two careers, haven't you? You've been, you've been in the military and you've had a career in the law. So how did you go from wanting to be head prefect to wanting to be a commando? <laughs> no, I'll, you're right. I'll accelerate through the timeline quickly. So, um just curiosity, really. I was at orientation week at university, as you and anyone would know. It's You see all those tents and stalls and it's almost overwhelming, all the different choices. And I saw this dark green tent down in a corner and I just wanted to know what was inside. And it was the army recruiting tent. And mm-hmm. when I went in and I just became curious about officer training and signed up. And from there, I really enjoyed that and heard about this thing called special forces and commandos. And again, it was curiosity. I wanted to see what it was like and whether I could. And um, and as you know, curiosity kills the cat. So I, I, I kept following um, curiosity down rabbit holes. And, and that ultimately led to a really significant part of my life and something that I'm very grateful for. Mm. And then the law came after that, is that right? It, it did. I I didn't get into law straight out of high school. I did economics and politics at Melbourne. And then I, I was able to, when I finished that, do law at Monash University. And that, that was really what I wanted to do all along. And I always wanted to be a barrister. So being a barrister and, and the army were, were, were things I, I was really interested in from an early age. Mm, mm. Okay. So we might come back a little bit to the military a little bit later, but I want to get into some nuts and bolts, first of all, because, again, we've got lots of people who listen to the show who are massively into politics and will know intimately how pre-selections work. But we also have people, of course, who would have no idea how pre-selections actually work. So why don't we just do a little bit of nuts and bolts about pre-selections in Victoria? What happens if you want to be pre-selected for, to be a Liberal candidate in Victoria? What's the process you go through? So the process involves uh, we have a governing body called the Administrative Committee and it's it's like a board, for want of a better word, and they, they are subject to constitutional requirements where we're uh, governed by a party constitution. And that constitution gives... Uh, certain steps they have to follow to open up pre-selections. So they give a date, they open it up, and there's a window to put your nomination in. Uh, So I fill in the form, and it's a statutory declaration, so it has to be very accurate and truthful. And you have a fee that gets attached to that, and you submit that form. And that, that then, when the date closes, they know which seats are in contest. And so when they opened it up for the 12 
liberal seats, there was one that had a contest. And then that's when it starts another process, which ultimately leads to a registration of of delegates and the convention, which was held last Sunday with just under 300 people. And the the point of that is that Liberal Party members have a say in selecting selecting the candidate. It's sort of like it comes from the membership, basically um, being being pre-selected in a seat like Menzies it, because because you've challenged the incumbent. That's right, and, and that is a, a critical part of the process. And there's certain criteria to be eligible to be a delegate. You need to have been in the party for two years. After a certain date, you, you have to be enrolled in the electorate. And there's certain conflicts of interest that aren't allowed. For instance, my brothers and my wife are not allowed to vote. But other than that, it's you've earned the right to have your say. And another important part of the process is that the speeches and questions, and it's quite an intense process, but at the end, it's a secret ballot. So no one ever knows how anyone votes. And I think that gives members the freedom to make their decision. And there's a lot of people who, and we'll, we'll get to this, who I think very highly of Kevin Andrews, but I'm confident they voted to renew on Sunday. And the secret ballot was a key part of that. Mm. Before we get to that and the result, let's just track back one step. So the campaign, now you've, you've given us um, an insight into your campaign for head prefect. Uh, give us an insight into your campaign for Menzies. Obviously, Kevin Andrews is a very well-known political figure, 30-year veteran, had all kinds of flashy endorsements from all kinds of people in the Liberal Party, had cabinet ministers in Canberra making calls for him, canvassing for him. So how do you run a campaign in those circumstances without the flashy endorsements? I mean, I, I could crack a joke and say, did you stack the branch? But <laughs> but it's it, it, the joke points to a serious question, right? Mm. When you're unseating an incumbent like Andrews, how do you go about doing that? It's actually quite simple. It started with many members asking me to do it, that they said they wanted to renew, and they have been asking for many years. And that's what started. And if there wasn't that organic desire to renew, it probably wouldn't have started. Mm-hmm. So when I started, that this, before even putting my nomination in, I reached out to many of the members. I met with them, sat down with them, and told them that I was seriously considering it and what were their thoughts. And and that feedback guided the decision. If I had not, if I had received negative feedback, I probably wouldn't have done it. But overwhelming feedback was, yes, please, it's time to renew. And they all said they really like Kevin and respect him and respect his record, but it's time to renew. And that just word renew kept coming again and again. Mm. And so from there, I, I, that prompted me to to go ahead and nominate and then it was just getting out and meeting to people and listening to them and talking to them about, you know, what, what they think we should be doing better as Liberals in this seat and nationally. And it was just a lot of conversations one-on-one. And, and for the last month, it was with my wife as well. We, we both went out to meet people. And most of those conversations mm-hmm. were 80% people talking and 20% us talking. It was, it was really just listening and and towards the end of the campaign, you, you distribute a brochure and you talk about yourself. But I was an open book on all of the issues they were concerned about. And uh, there's, no other, there's no other silver bullet to it. It was, it was really just engaging with people one-on-one. And I, I think that's what really mattered. And, and then so when all the endorsements and phone calls came, uh, I think it was they were not really going to change people's minds and they knew they were coming. 
that people were already in a different place. I mean, Is that what you mean? I'll never know. That's just my guess. And I never finished a conversation with anyone asking what their vote was because I re- truly respect their right to vote in a secret ballot. So I never really knew where things were until the result came in. And, and I think that's the way it should be. And, and I think at the last few weeks when all of the calls came uh, and we told people, we said, look, we've been delegates before, these calls will come and that's normal. So the, I think the delegates weren't surprised when those heavy endorsements came and the heavy calls came, but I think they very politely and with respect uh, held, held on to their secret ballot and, and that's what they treasured. Mm, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I want to get into, too, in a tick, some of the feedback you got about what needs to change and about the dynamics in the Victorian division, which is sort of quite interesting. But first of all, just be, I'll ask you this because a lot of listeners, readers, people whom I interact with on social media have asked me since you won the pre-selection, where do you sit in terms of the, the spectrum of the party. In Canberra, there are obviously factions. I know the Liberal Party denies that there are factions, but there are very clearly factions within the Liberal Party. But people who know you tell me Keith doesn't sit in a factional box. He's not He's not a moderate. He's not a right-winger. He is. Uh, people are describing you as a classical liberal. But anyway, wh- rather than other people write, <laughs> write your, your identity for you, you tell me where you sit. On the, in the spectrum of the Liberal Party. No, thank you for that. And you'd be aware there's a, a lot of commentary about identity politics from people, but they're very quick to throw that identity on not just me, but Liberal Party members more generally. And I think that's the, the, the destructive part of concentrating on factions too much because people are more complex than that and the members are more complex than that. I joined the Liberal Party in 1996 and, of course, there's factions. It's human nature that people do that. But I always found that when it came to pre-selections, factions stopped at the door. People realised, look, factions will come and go or someone's allegiance today will change next year, but this, what I'm deciding today lasts longer than that and it matters more. And I think that still mattered on Sunday. But as to your question as to where I sit, uh, I think describing me as a classical Liberal is fair. I strongly believe in the values of, you know, hope, reward and opportunity. I, I do I do care about freedoms. I am a passionate free speech person. But above all of that, I, I, I do want to be a person who doesn't just talk values. I, I want to be judged on my record for them because it's easy to say what people you think they want to hear. It's about how you act and how you stand up for those values that, that matters. And I think most people in Victoria, on whatever faction they're in, they're at their heart, they're classical liberals. Uh, there's very few people in Victoria who use the word moderate. It, it's it's more, I think, a New South Wales uh, specific term. Yeah, it is. That's true, mm. Astinger. It, it's true. It is a more New South Wales construction and there's a faction in, the, or well, not a faction, but a group in the Liberal Party in Victoria who like modern liberals rather than than moderates as, as a descriptor. And, again, I don't want to tie us up too much in labels, uh, mm. but I'm, I'm just trying to establish, you know, where you sit in the firmament. Just a couple of quick questions that will be meaningful for listeners. This government, the Morrison government and, and the governments that preceded it, the Abbott and Turnbull governments, seems to me that this iteration of Liberal governments is more comfortable with uh, government intervention <laughs> than certainly the the Howard government was that I followed, although Howard was also prone to dabbling in that space. Are you an economic dry? Is that how you describe yourself? Or are you completely comfortable with governments to 
determining market outcomes, picking winners, all that stuff? My, my default position is that our economy prospers and is at its strongest when the government gets out of the way and that the free market is allowed to take those risks with certainty. And that's what I think has been a feature of Australia's prosperity for decades. However, what has happened in the last 12 months, uh, you know, unusual and serious times, and I'm, I'm not going to hold fast to economic theory when the times mean that that's not suitable. So, but for oh, example, yeah. no, in, no, no, in no, war I, and, yeah. and in pandemics, of, of course, there's a serious role for government intervention. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't even really referring so much to the fiscal stuff, which was just obvious mm. common sense. Last year, I meant more as a disposition in terms of where this government sits compared to others that have preceded it. The issue I'm obsessed with and our readers are obsessed with climate change, what's your view? My view is that there's, there's a political and a policy dimension to this and I, I share the Prime Minister's view. I, I think this is a global problem and one of the best ways Australia can contribute to this global problem is leveraging our strengths in technology, whether it's engineers and scientists and our universities. I think it's not impossible that technology can help provide a silver bullet at some stage to help get the world through this. I think he's got the, the policy and the politics right on that. It's, it's not easy, but, but I commend him on, on where he's, he's landed right now. But the science, you accept the science? Yes, I do. And more than that, I, I live in an electorate, I live in Menzies. And, and for your listeners that don't know, it's, it's 25% parkland. There's a lot of liberal people here, but they treasure the environment and they treasure, you know, the pristine environment that we live in. It's, it's particularly in COVID. Uh, you see people walking along the Yarra, people walking their dogs in the parks, and that extends to their view of the world and, and our place in the world. And so I, I share their view that, you know, liberals have a role uh, and, and a responsibility to talk about the environment, but in a responsible way. And I think the Prime Minister is doing that. Let's sort of land now on that feedback you got during the pre-selection from, I think you referenced it sort of early in the conversation, views from the grassroots about what needs to what needs to be different in terms of representation. Like just a couple of obvious points, the Liberal Party underperforms in Victoria, both at the state level and the national level, and that has been the case for a few election cycles. So what needs what are people telling you and what needs to change? Is the Liberal Party doing enough to present itself to the public as a broad church? Is the Liberal Party still appealing to young people? I know that you there are some colleagues of yours from Victoria who are genuinely concerned about that, whether or not enough is being done to appeal to the next generation. What I know it's sort of fraught for <laughs> a person who's only just achieved pre-selection and has not even yet moved fully into your next phase of public life to go there, but I'm very interested in your thoughts. What does the Liberal Party need to do better? No, and, I, and you're right, Catherine, I, I will qualify it. I, I'm, I'm a candidate, but I, I, it's a view I think almost all Liberals would share that the results speak for themselves. I, I don't want to be a commentator on state politics, but People desperately want to see a change after last year and they want Liberals to succeed. In a quarter of a century, it, it, it's getting close to one term of state Liberal government. We all want that to change. Federally, it's, 
it could be doing better as well. In 1990, the Liberal Party had 21 out of 38 seats. We now have 12. So the trend has been down. And there's there's probably many reasons for that. So, But within the Liberal Party, I think people, they have this strong desire to to get back to where we were, to, to get back to at least being more of an even split in this state because I think people refuse to accept that this is now just a Labor state. I've heard people say, oh, Victoria is the Massachusetts of Australia and mm. and and I don't I accept that. I think John that. Howard used to say that. <laughs> he might have, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it John Howard? I think John Howard used to say that. But anyway, yeah. He might yes. have said that. Sorry, but I, go on. But I, I think that's, you know, we should always look to improve. And, and people, Menzies, where I live, is full of immigrant families who came here seeking a better life. And they came here seeking a better life, seeking values of reward for effort, hope and opportunity. And they're core liberal values. And I'd like to think the Liberal Party has a wonderful story to tell immigrant families, particularly in the north of Melbourne and the west of Melbourne and the growth areas. And I think if we if we all make that effort to reach out to them and say, you know, we, we want to hear from you and what matters in your community, but let us tell you about what our party stands for, because it's it's the same. Th- it stands for the same things that brought you to this country, and I think if we do that and do that work, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the Liberal Party, state and federally. It's not just communication, though, is it? Because I don't, I don't think, notwithstanding the organic sort of move for generational change that you've referred to, that sort of sat behind the pre-selection, Ryan. I, d- I don't think you would have come into public life without a view that it's more than packaging that needs to change. The Liberal Party is trying to basically, as you say, get back to parity in a state that is leaning very progressive. So it's, I, I agree, it's, it's, it's not just repelling various groups in the community it's, and it's connecting with them. But substantively, what do you think needs to change in order for Victoria, the Victorian Liberals to get back to parity? I, th- I think it, substantively we, we need to recognise what problems and issues families are facing and to be a part of delivering solutions for them. We are entering a very challenging economic period as we move past March and insolvency laws, the freeze changes and uh, a lot of the, you know, the payments get wound back. We're going to be facing significant challenges in this state mm. And Victoria has had a very tough year. Um, obviously, there's the toll that families who, who lost lives during COVID, they're facing that. But I've, the economic consequences are significant. I ha- I'm a barrister and have chambers in the city. And when you walk around the city, most of the cafes and restaurants, they're closed. They just started to open up. And then now we get this decision this morning. Uh, it's really hard for them. And then you speak to people in hospitality, even out in the suburbs and out here in, in Menzies. Uh, they've been doing it very tough. And some of them say, even now that I'm back on my feet, it's going to take me 10 years to earn that money back if everything goes well. So, so I think we, we need first need to listen. And you, you don't talk at people. You get out and say, what can we do to help you? Uh, what problems are you suffering? And and from there, I, I think then then we can, st- if we show that we care, and that only starts if you actually really do care, um, if we do that and, and do that work, I, I think there's a lot of hope for the Liberal Party to help people in the state. Just very, I want to get into a sort of existential question with you to finish. I skipped past your military 
service. Obviously, there's been a lot of controversy around since the Brereton report about the SAS and conduct during the various tours of Afghanistan. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about that. What is your view about that? And has Brereton got it right? Does the SAS have a cultural problem? Does it need to change? I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. No, I'm happy to. That report was made for heartbreaking reading. I um, I come at this wearing two hats. The first is I'm a barrister of 10 years in Victoria and 10 years ago in one of my very first big cases was acting for two soldiers who were accused of war crimes related charges. They were, civilians were killed, children were killed and that trial was a courts martial went on for about a year and I acted for the team commander. I was junior to a Sydney barrister. And and I saw what happened when there was a combat incident allegation and how important the presumption of innocence was. And, and in the end, they were not found guilty and the charges were thrown out as being wrong in law. But their lives were were affected by that forever and, and the destruction around their families, marriages broken up. It was really, really hard. So I've seen the pain that can be inflicted in this process. It's not easy and it takes a long time. And that process is only starting here. But my other hat is that I have served three tours as a commando officer and the second one I was a platoon commander. And it was heartbreaking reading to hear of the allegations there because I know so much sacrifice was made by Australian soldiers. And, And I know on the tour, I can only speak of the tour that I was on, we changed things so much to reduce civilian casualties and to protect the Afghan people because that was our mission. And so we went, for instance, from doing night raids to doing day raids. That's a a massive increase in risk because it's easier to get shot at, it's easier to walk on an IED, but that was an important thing to do because, you know, if you risk civilian casualties, that it's counterproductive to your mission uh, if a civilian is killed, well, that family is just going to turn to the Taliban. You know, that, that's completely understandable. So we did everything we could to try and, and reduce that. Um, as to the cultural issues, I, I, I don't really know. And, and I think Justice Brereton, he is a, a very accomplished, well-regarded judge and two-star general in the reserves. He was the appropriate person to do that report. And it, was, it took a lot of work. But now the work really starts and, and I think the Defence Force has quite rightly split its response into two sort of divisions. The criminal process, which is now led by former Justice Mark Weinberg, uh, gives me a lot of confidence. He is one of the most well-regarded criminal jurists ever out of Melbourne, and he is the right person to be doing that, and that gives me confidence. And then the second part is the implementation panel, because separate to the criminal process, uh, there's an administrative process where defence is entitled to say, well, what, what can we look at culturally? What maybe went wrong? What, what leadership lessons are there to be learned? Because it, we have to fix that now because we need our defence force to be ready at any moment to defend us. But that culture, uh, Keith, is, is that something you experienced? Is it the culture that was narrated through the Brereton Report uh, and left a really searing impression in the minds of anyone who read it, uh, is is that familiar to you? In part, there's no there's no easy answer to that, and, and I'm not dodging your question, Catherine. It's it's just it's it's really it's layered and difficult. The mm. uh, Special Operations Command, it's primarily it's got its SAS stream and it's got its commando stream, 
there's rivalry between the two and that can be healthy, but sometimes rivalry can go to an unhealthy place. And I know Special Operations Command is making a lot of changes to make sure it's, it's, it's on a healthy path. The other thing is that when I first joined the military decades ago, whenever you'd meet someone who was a commando or SAS, you just looked up to them and wanted to hear from them and talk to them. And everyone I met from SAS and commandos were humble and compassionate and really kind. And then that struck me as a, as a place that I wanted to go to then. It, it attracted me to it. It's, it's possible um, that some people lost that and became more arrogant. And, and I think arrogance can take people maybe to dark places. And, and that's something that needs to be looked at. Mm. But, but I, I don't want to label whole regiments like that. They're overwhelmingly, people still are humble and compassionate and decent. But uh, th- that's something that the regiments need to look at. And I think they are right now. Mm, thank you for that. So let's end this way. <laughs> Things are a bit better, I think, in Canberra than they have been at various points over the last decade or so, which has been a highly disrupted period in politics. A lot of people I know, just from talking to people around, are put off from entering public life because they regard the life as brutal, combative, unsustainable, you lose your privacy, everything you say you say becomes, you know, a matter it gets sort of chewed up by the culture war machine or worse. The life appears unviable to a lot of people. But here you are, you're a young bloke, you've worked really in a strange way towards this eventuality all your life, you're clearly ready to go, raring to go. Uh, Why politics? And do you think that (laughs) – there's no other way to put it other than directly, uh, you know, politics can be a profession for mad people, and by mad people I mean real uh, obsessive, uh, argumentative people – why do you why do you want to enter public life? What's it about for you? This is going to sound corny, uh, but it's true. <laughs> I am um, I am so grateful for everything, all of the opportunities that Australia gave me. So grateful. And when I, you know, stepped off a helicopter as a platoon commander for the first time in Afghanistan, I, f- I remember saying to a friend of mine. This must be what it feels like walking out onto Lords as the captain of the Australian cricket team. It, it just—it was such a privilege and an honour to be doing that uh, in our name, and and at its heart was service and making a difference. All of us were only on this planet for a short time, and the best thing we can do is leave it a little bit better than we found it. And and politics is clearly a way to leave um, a significant mark for good or bad. And, and I think that requires people putting their hands up. And, and I know you, you hear those stories about how difficult it is. And I have a young family and, and the challenges that come with that. And, but I think that may be more determined to put my hand up because we want other people to do it. And, and I think if our political parties are strong, and we've seen in the United States when political parties are weak, the democracy is weak. So I think there's a lot of cynicism about politics and pre-selections and people talk about factions But if our political parties, and I include the Labor Party and all the others, if they represent their community and their grassroots involved and they're democratic, then I think more people will put their hands up. And and I think that's a good thing. So I think strong party democracy makes us a strong democracy. And, And that's a lesson I think we should all take from Sunday. 
Well, it's uh, it's probably good, really. So we're at the start of a new year. Let's let's end on a hopeful note. Uh, Keith, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. Good luck with the, the many adventures ahead, because you've only really just reached sort of I don't know uh, what's what's the sort of mountain climbing analogy. You're sort of like you're down the mountain. You've still got a you're at base camp or wherever you oh, are. I think I think I'm still at the airport lounge. I've just got out the door <laughs> looking for a taxi. <laughs> Yeah, possibly. Anyway, um, good luck with the adventure to come. Thank you, obviously, to the listeners. Uh, As I said, it really is great to be back. Thanks to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. Get in touch. It's the start of the year. I'm keen to do a couple of episodes uh, through the year, which are sort of like Ask Me Anything episodes. Get in touch with me about stuff that you want to hear on the show, questions you want answered, all of that sort of stuff. I'm very, very easy to track down on social media. Get in touch. We'll be back with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.